Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to another exciting episode. I'm Doug Parsons, your host of America Adapts. On today's episode, I'm talking with Dr. Kyle White, a tribal and indigenous expert on climate change and adaptation. Kyle is a professor at Michigan State and himself a member of a tribe. This is a conversation long in the making. I've had many of you reach out saying I need to talk more deeply about tribal issues. Well, this is that episode, folks. Kyle and I have a sometimes raw conversation about indigenous people and the challenges of non-native people in engaging tribal communities. Hopefully, this will be a resource for those who are looking to collaborate with tribes on climate issues. Also, Kyle will be at the National Adaptation Forum, leading and participating in multiple panels there. After you listen to this episode, and if you're attending the forum, be sure to go meet Kyle in person with any questions you might have. This is a rare opportunity to connect with one of my guests. Okay, thanks again to Dr. Michael Mann for coming on the last episode. It's always a treat to talk to Mike. Be sure to check out that episode. It was titled, Return of the Climate Jedi, because Mike is a Jedi in my book. It was fun to see the social media around that episode. Someone even photoshopped Mike's face on Obi-Wan Kenobi. Mike got a kick out of that. Also, check out the new logo for America Daps. It's simplified and I think more dynamic. Thanks to graphic designer Sarah Wessler. Sarah was also responsible for designing my website. She is awesome. Okay, let's jump right in and hear from Dr. Kyle White on tribes, indigenous people, and climate change. Hey, Adapters. Today, I am very excited to be hosting Dr. Kyle Powis-White. Kyle is an Associate Professor of Philosophy and Community Sustainability and Faculty Affiliate of the American Indian and Indigenous Studies and Environment Science and Policy Programs at Michigan State University. Kyle is an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. Hi, Kyle. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I look forward to our conversation. So I probably mispronounced that. What's the proper pronunciation? You were pretty close. The proper pronunciation is Potawatomi. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. I've been approached by listeners many times now to saying I really need to take a deep dive on indigenous and tribal issues. And I, I know it's a rich area, but I'm glad I can talk to an expert and someone who's also a member of a tribal nation, which I think is very important. So, yes, thanks for, again for coming on. Yeah, I look forward to um, talking about all these topics. Okay, so I see our conversation breaking apart into two areas, and I kind of do want to do sort of a sharp pivot when we do the second part. And the first part is talking about indigenous approaches to adaptation and climate change. But then in the second part, kind of dig in and talk about tribal engagement on these issues. And there's obviously going to be some overlap. We're going to bring up similar issues in those two areas, but I kind of see it breaking apart into that. So let's just dive right into climate change and, and, and tribal issues. And so, and I, I have all this context here. It's like, I'm going to be culturally insensitive times, not because I did it on purpose, because maybe I'm not using the right terminology. And I, I wasn't even quite sure if when I, I'm going between tribal and indigenous, and then on the other side, it's like sort of Western culture, what would you recommend the sort of how kind of breaking apart those two groups, the language I should use? Yeah, well, it's one of those tricky issues that when you're used to working in these contexts, you sort of have a feel about what the appropriate terms are. But the way that I understand it in my own work is that, you know, broadly, indigenous people is the term that I use when I'm referring to any group. 
Now, in specific contexts like the United States, oftentimes we use tribe to refer to specific tribal governments, to refer to specific communities. Uh, in other locations, tribe is not a fantastic word to use, but it's always important to be as precise as possible when you're referring to tribes that have very different backgrounds and histories and statuses as governments. So I always default to indigenous people generally. Yeah, I, I agree. I, when I lived in Australia, it was either indigenous or aboriginal representatives. So, And I, I think our discussion will probably focus in, in a lot of related to the work that you do is North America. And so tribal will probably be a pretty safe way of talking about things. Absolutely. I'm going to throw you just, this is sort of a 30,000 foot question. Just so people have some context here. What are some of the big issues? And I know you don't represent every tribe out there, but you have, a, I think, a very profound understanding of what's going on there. What are some of the big issues for tribal communities and climate change? You know, indigenous people, we've really been at the forefront of taking action to address climate change and building awareness on the different climate change issues that we're facing. And for a lot of indigenous people, especially in North America, you know, people are concerned that the trends in the climate system are going to make it harder to practice some of our cultures. It's going to create economic difficulties, given that some of the businesses that tribes are involved in are based in the natural environment. And a lot of indigenous communities are concerned about extremely severe transitions, like communities that are having to resettle due to climate change impacts, you know, permanent resettlement. And there's a lot of other issues, but those are some in particular that a lot of tribes are talking about. Maybe you could give a just a I know there's all th sorts of things happening all over the, the, the country in North America, but just a few examples regionally of some of the tribes dealing with these issues. Well, so in the Great Lakes region, for example, there's a lot of concern over the, the quality of the fishery. You know, Anishinaabe people in the Great Lakes have, you know, longstanding traditions of fishing and, you know, trends in water temperature, trends in water quality that are related to climate, but also other factors as well, concern a lot of people about whether they'll be able to continue those fishing traditions. You know, there's also a lot of traditions related to forests and forest products, you know, including crafts traditions such as basket making. And, you know, people are concerned that the trends in the environment make it harder to find the supplies that you need, which, you know, if you're talking about something like, say, basket making using forest products, that is something that affects you economically. It's something that affects you culturally, especially if those activities are part of your community, part of your family. And it's no different from something like fishing as well, which is an economic activity, but also a cultural and family activity. Okay, some of these questions, I, I want to make sure I get right, so I'm going to read them. Indigenous people, more so than most Americans, hold a relationship to place and land that is central to their culture. While many people's response to dramatic changes in climate will be mobility, how might indigenous cultures reach, react to drastic changes in the land with which they share this deep bond? Well, one thing that I like to tell people is that for, you know, indigenous people, and it depends obviously on the community, but for the, you know, the group that I'm part of, Potawatomi people and the larger Anishinaabe people, this is not the, the first time in our history that we've experienced uh, environmental change. And 
we've experienced environmental change in a lot of different ways. And so I think one of the responses I have to that particular question is that for us, we see ourselves as always uh, having had to adapt to environmental change. This, this isn't the first time. And this particular type of change that we're undergoing now, which is largely related to industrialization and the operation of capitalism and colonialism, uh, is one that's extremely challenging. And we're trying to do our best to draw on our traditions, on our current skills and resources uh, as tribes to be able to protect our communities and to be able to hopefully make advancements in areas like, you know, green energy. Okay, so you just sort of explained how there's been a history of transition in the environment. Is there traditional knowledge? Is there an oral history that you can look back upon that, like, okay, here's a few examples of it? Well, absolutely. If you look in our storytelling tradition, if you look in our memories, and, you know, even obviously if you look at the things that the anthropologists obviously documented, even though a lot of their practices aren't very ethical, or at least historically weren't very ethical, uh, as well as the writings of you know Europeans and Americans that visited Anishinaabe people, you find a repository of this knowledge of how to live in a constantly changing environment. So for example, Anishinaabe people, our history of of society is as a seasonal society, and we use practices such as burning and the you know management of floodplains to be able to create ecosystems where we could have relationships with plants, animals, insects, where everybody was supported, human or non-human. And people actually didn't live in the same place all year round. They constantly moved during the seasons. And people's own identity was actually bound up with the different places that they and their families would be at different parts of the year. And so this is why people would identify with names that would refer to particular animals or plants or or locations because people actually identified themselves as people with responsibilities to adapt to constant change. I'm wondering if you've been um, looped into any of these conversations, and I'm not sure if any tribal interests have been part of it, but you know, with Hurricane Sandy in, in the New York, New Jersey area, in the notion of managed retreat, and it's just considered an adaptation strategy, but I imagine within tribal communities, there's just a lot of history there. And you look at our own history, um, just forced migration. And in here, it's more of sort of this kind of technical term, managed retreat. You know, the seas are going to rise and you're going to have to leave the areas. And are you have you been part of those conversations? And some of the conversations that I had talked about even smaller communities where they have money available to help them move, it's hard to get people to want to leave. I mean, these are just people living in the suburbs, but they've been there for 20, 30, 40 years, a much shorter time frame. And you must look at those conversations and just it must be a sort of a minefield when you think about approaches with tribal communities. Yeah, and that's actually a question that I think for a lot of people is tough to understand. Though a lot of my work has been working with tribes on climate change plans and supporting tribal collaboration with scientists, I do do some work that I can't talk about too much explicitly um, on uh, climate change resettlement. And But I will say a few just general things about resettlement. And what I think a lot of people miss is that for any tribe that today is concerned with 
you know, having to make a tough choice about resettling due to a particular climate change impact, that historically their ancestors probably wouldn't have been in that situation because they would have had sovereignty and cultural and kinship relationships across a huge region that they were quite mobile in terms of moving around in throughout the year. So impact, an environmental impact that would affect one area, they'd have a lot of different options to adapt. And a lot of tribes have histories also, of course, in the stories of having to adapt to natural disasters and to other extreme types of environmental events. So you had all of that kind of repository of knowledge and and adaptation options. But what's happened is that, you know, in contexts like the United States, if you look historically, the United States playbook for, you know, colonialism has been to over time erode all of the different options that native people would have to adapt to any form of change, including the boarding schools, which stripped indigenous children of knowledge and language, uh, which is oftentimes a key place uh, where people retained an understanding of how to adapt to environmental change. And so a lot of us today, we're very much, we care very much about these small areas of land that our communities are based in. And we've worked very hard to protect them as some of the last areas of land that we could sort of call our own. So it's kind of this situation where on the one hand, we have this history of knowing that we used to have all these options to adapt. But on the other hand, we care very much about these lands that we've been able to hold and protect. And that makes it so oftentimes the decision to resettle is extremely difficult, especially when the United States oftentimes engages in strategies for resettlement that in a lot of ways actually look like previous strategies that were used to dispossess us of land. You, you shared a, quite a bit of your writing with me and one, and you just brought it up is this notion of climate change is, is a continuation of colonialism. And I got a quote here from you and I, I want to have this conversation. The same colonial practices and policies that opened up indigenous territories for deforestation and extractive industries are the ones that make adaptation difficult for indigenous people today. So, yeah, I mean, just, I guess, elaborate on that. You were kind of getting to that, but that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, and, and this has been, I think, something that, you know, I've wanted to, you know, communicate as as widely as possible. But, you know, before Native people were even talking about climate change in terms of an issue of today, they were constantly working to get the United States as well as state and local governments to improve things like treaty relationships, uh, like tribal access to land uh, off reservation, policies that would protect uh, natural resources and and ecosystems within reservations or larger historic areas that are still part of uh, indigenous people's heritage. And what's important is that the, the United States has, you know, continued to, to not do its fair share and has continued to fail in supporting the environmental policies that we need as indigenous people to flourish and to really live lives that are closely connected to the environment. And when you fast forward to today with the climate change ordeal, if you look at why many tribes are vulnerable to climate change, uh, it's precisely because of the land that we've lost. It's because the treaty rights that our ancestors actually oftentimes designed to be adaptive and responsive to change 
are only interpreted very rigidly by the United States. And so if you look at all the reasons why tribes are concerned about climate change, you can actually trace them to the failure of the United States to really honor the types of policies that we need to live sustainably. So this is sort of an aside here, but I was thinking of, okay, it's it's not been a pretty history in, in engagement with tribal communities, but just now with tribal lands and there are some legal precedents, has anyone kind of really dug into the sort of laws that are on the books now that those potentially could be tools for tribal communities to, I guess, to get the broader society to engage on climate change? You, you hear about these, these teens that are suing on climate change, but are there legal tools within, the, the, I guess, the tribal legislation that could be applied that way in the broader climate change issue? I think absolutely. And I think there's at least two areas that are important uh, in relation to, to that question. Um, so I think the first one is is treaty rights. And for tribes who have uh, strong treaty rights, those treaty rights actually suggest a a way of thinking about the stewardship of entire regions based on collaborative and cooperative relationships. And because treaty rights actually are the, the law of the land and have that highest legal status, that tribes such as those in the Pacific Northwest with the Treaty Rights at Risk Initiative are really actually using the legal status of treaties to create opportunities for more coordinated climate adaptation and other environmental programs in states like Washington. Another area is that tribes are sovereigns, at least the 573 federally recognized tribes are considered by the United States to be sovereigns. And uh, in the case of my tribe, for example, we can set our own environmental policies, we can set a lot of regulations, and we can oftentimes do so in ways that set standards that matter to our communities. And so if a tribe has their own climate change plan, if the tribal council adopts it, that becomes actually code within the tribe. And so the people that live nearby the tribe would then be aware of that code. And if it's a, a code that suggests greater responsibilities for being prepared for climate change, then it's one that could be tremendously influential. And also, depending on some of the specifics, could actually be enforceable uh, in cases where somebody has breached it or violated it. Right. I've never understood that with tribal management, that you look at local government is where a lot of environmental laws and policies are at. Do, is it just on a reservation by reservation approach? Is, is there teeth to the, having that code? Absolutely. Um, you know, depending on the particular program or issue, um, tribes actually under a policy that the U.S. adopted in the, the 70s actually have the same status as states on particular uh, with, with regard to particular statutes. And in cases of water quality, for example, where tribes set higher standards than their neighbors, agencies like Environmental Protection Agency actually backed up the tribe's standards when somebody from outside the tribe violated them. So there are actually a number of ways and you know I can think of you know a number of different types of, of you know, climate change strategies in which if a tribe adopted it as part of its actual tribal code, then that would have a lot of teeth and meaning for the communities uh, around it. 
But it's also the case that tribes work collaboratively. So every single region in an, like the United States or Canada has intertribal organizations that work to represent larger tribal issues across the entire region. And there's also national organizations such as the National Congress of American Indians, which has put forward um, several key recommendations over the years on climate change policy. Okay, so the U.S. government, and we're all surprised it was released, was the most recent national climate assessment, basically the state of climate change in the United States. Um, I'm not sure if you had a chance to kind of look that over, but if you did, how, how did they do on indigenous issues? Good question. I was actually an author on it, so, okay. I've, so, I, so I've, I've, I've looked it over quite a bit. <laughs> and so... The, so one of the things that I think is important for people to note, especially those who work on climate adaptation, is that the U.S. Global Change Research Program in the, the late 90s actually had a tribally centered event with, I think, over 180 indigenous persons, and it was called the, the Native Peoples, Native Homelands Workshop. And that actually led to, I think, the first tribal chapter of a climate science report, which was the 2001 National Climate Assessment. And there was specifically an Indigenous Peoples chapter in the 2014 National Climate Assessment. And then in 2018, there was one as well. And what I think people should take away from that is a couple of things. First, what we found on the tribal chapter, at least the author team, was that actually the reason why tribes are vulnerable has much more to do with their relationships with local government, with state government, and with the federal government than it does with the severity of the particular climate change impact. So if you look through that chapter, you'll see it's a lot about relationships and the idea that if there were stronger relationships between tribes and other entities, that there probably more capacity to adapt to some of these changes. Another thing I want to note is that tribes are referenced uh, throughout the report, and we made a concerted effort to make sure that the terms that we were using were unified so that it was clear about the different types of tribal and intertribal entities that were being referenced. And so I really think that uh, the NCA4 does better than most of the assessments that I've seen so far to not only reference uh, tribes, but reference a number of issues from bureaucratic issues to policy issues to indigenous knowledge to tribes as leaders in adaptation and mitigation of climate change. And I think folks should really um, give it a try and, and, and check it out and see what they, what they learn about uh, indigenous people. I'm not sure how much you use it. I, it's sort of an ongoing criticism I've had of the assessment. It obviously represents this monumental effort for people bringing together the best science, but communicating it, marketing it, just getting it out there and being used is a huge challenge, and I just don't think that shop is set up for that. And do, how, do you just kind of bring it up in your conversations with indigenous representatives? How, how are you trying to get it out there? <sighs> um, yeah, and great question. And you know, I think a lot of us were really disappointed that it got released on Black Friday. Right. And yeah, and you know, and, and given some of the changes obviously in the political environment in the United States, you know, many people really put a lot of effort into ensuring this report would come out. And so I do travel a lot to give talks and to share with people and to do training and I always reference 
you know, both the 2018 assessment as well as the, the, the 2001 tribal chapter and do my best to include it, uh, wherever I can. So for any listeners that, that meet me or connect with me somewhere, you'll, you'll probably, um, hear me talk about it. Uh, and, and, and I am writing about it too in the current work that I'm doing right now. Yeah, and I don't want to throw rocks in regards to the current political climate. I get it. It's difficult enough. I, it, it predates this administration to the, the, the just marketing previous versions of the assessment. It's never quite an easy thing. It's publish it and they will use it, which is not a very good approach. So I, 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 it's important work and I, it just needs to be embedded local government, state government, everyone. And it's just a challenge. So this is sort of an a- academic exercise. And you might just say, you know what, Doug, that's a dumb question, but I, I, I lived in Australia and I'm getting more exposure to tribal interests here in Arizona, not so much when I lived in the East. But I just wonder, and this especially in the context of how tribes respond to climate change, is that there are varying degrees of tribal integrity. And I don't even know if I'm using the right term, terminology. You think of, let's say, Amazon tribes have barely had exposure and that's, you know, a generalization. But then others, you know, they live in the suburbs and they're just fully sort of assimilated. And is there an assessments of the integrity of tribes. And I know that's probably fraught with trouble if you were even attempting to do it, but I'm on the flip side, just sort of value of learning lessons from these kind of groups. And what I'm getting at too, is that, is there a spectrum of tribal interests that like really could respond to adaptation more effectively because there's more cultural integrity. And did that make sense? Yeah, no, it makes sense. And, you know, I do talk to people about, this kind of precise question. And, you know, one thing I like to suggest is to sort of, you know, turn on its head some of the assumptions that that just are taught to us in the school system. So, for example, the idea that there are today tribes that are like, say, isolated or indigenous people that are more isolated, and then there are ones that are, say, less isolated and more spread out. What, what's interesting about that is that historically, uh, it's a little bit the opposite. So, for example, a tribe or an indigenous people in some place in the world that somebody today might think of as rather isolated – Back in the day, they were probably a group that was extremely well networked in to people all throughout the region and had expansive trade relationships. And a lot of their resilience as a people had to do with those those trade relationships, which were oftentimes materialized through kinship. And so a lot of us in our teaching and work try to emphasize these huge continental scale and regional networks that indigenous people maintained. And so for a lot of our ancestors, the knowledge that we had, the adaptive strategies that we had came out of being part of, you know, not necessarily globalization being the right word, but of a, of a massive, you know, regional and continental scale community. And when we get to the idea today that there are tribes that say are, are isolated and vulnerable to climate change because of their, their isolation. Well, their quote unquote isolation is actually a cause of how their connections to others have been dismantled through colonialism, capitalism, and industrialization, even if those processes haven't necessarily touched the, the place where they, you know, currently are uh, living. And so I think that's an important thing to, to note. And 
almost every indigenous community I know has a population that is connected to people living in cities, to people living in rural areas. And part of what makes it difficult to operate as indigenous people is that we are oftentimes seen as communities that ultimately originate in a particular location instead of the idea that like a lot of other societies our populations are are everywhere and we actually have quite expansive societies so an adaptation strategy for say like my tribe that only includes the the homeland in Oklahoma but doesn't include all of our people who live in cities and in other parts of the United States is not going to be an adequate strategy uh, for us and oftentimes indigenous people who live in cities are extremely vulnerable to a number of issues, including climate change, because they're not really recognized as a community in those urban settings. Yeah, that to me is just as an outsider, just defining what kind of like perfect tribal culture looks like today. You know, tribes evolve. They've probably always evolved. And I just think people are trying to put a shell around what's happening out there. And yeah, to me, you know, can you sort of define what a, what a perfect tribe looks like. And I guess you wouldn't ever really go through that exercise in the first place. You know, in Australia, there was, there was a lot of efforts to maintain the cultural integrity of the Aboriginal people. And they're traditionally, they were nomadic and are they able to do that anymore? And not really. And I think there was just this, uh, this elusive way of trying to define it for them. Yeah. And I think that's something that, People really need to think about the history of some of these places like the U.S. and Australia is that kind of this idea of like distinct tribes was really an invention of colonialism and something that was used against tribes. And it's something actually that we struggle with. So, for example, on the topic of uh, climate adaptation, one issue that actually tribes face, which a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think about, is you might have uh, tribal members who are raised in, say, large cities or raised outside of, the, say, the reservation community. And they'd like to go back home after they get their degrees and work in natural resources or work in environmental quality. But because it's been difficult for a lot of tribes to build programs that connect all of their members together, no matter where they live, you know, oftentimes when those people go back to the reservation, they're just kind of out of touch with it and they're not connected to the community. And there's a huge learning curve, which some people might tell you is not that different from, from non-native people. And so this leads sometimes to a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of challenges. Um, and oftentimes non-native people think that just because a native person's a member of the tribe that they have sort of the same knowledge and connections to particular dimensions of the tribal community, which is oftentimes wrong. And so in those ways, actually, keeping our communities and communication, strengthening our relationships no matter where we live, uh, can be actually an important way of thinking about uh, adaptation. Well, you've talked a, a bit about this, but I'm just wondering if you could share some examples. We, we hear about how Western culture could learn and benefit, especially regarding adaptation to tribal examples of it. Is, is there any really kind of model case studies in the, the U.S. that you can kind of point to where a local government, state government, you know, a federal program has really benefited from the, the approach that may, maybe a tribe has taken? One or two areas where, you know, I think that that might exist where you see local governments and 
and, and sometimes the federal government beginning to to learn from from tribes. I mean, I think it has to do with the idea that when a a tribe oftentimes tries to either restore or protect an ecosystem or to to build its resilience that that's not just a like a technical thing um that's not just about you know a certain way of you know rebuilding or strengthening the physical aspects of the environment it's actually something that's cultural and spiritual and so when tribes seek to say restore a species or to strengthen the habitat for a species that is considered to be the same thing as getting people more involved and learning about that species and developing a personal connection to it. So that it's actually the activities that people do on a day-to-day basis and the commitment that they feel to protecting the environment that can support the resilience and preparedness of a society. And so whether it's programs like, you know, phenology programs or whether it's uh, cultural programs that local governments are supporting in which people uh, actually learn about the environment and come to care about their responsibilities. Those are actually all tribal approaches to climate preparedness and to climate adaptation. And the key thing is that for tribes, what we've learned through all of our history is that if people don't have a personal connection and a personal commitment that's reflected through their education, their upbringing, and their current employment, that they're not going to engage in those daily activities that support a clean, safe, and healthy environment and one that's prepared for climate change. Oh boy, I guess this is where the cynic in me kind of uh, rears its head is that I've had this conversation about, you know, let's take a, a conservationist that they, they do what they do, a lot of them because they see the intrinsic value of the environment or wildlife. And I, there's a lot of parallels with, uh, like you just described, the tribal approaches with, you know, that you're personally invested. And I think when it comes to adaptation, the broader society, they don't, they're never going to see the intrinsic value of these things that they're going to get behind adaptation because there's a sense of urgency. It's almost your survival mode. And so it, it, I think conservationists have struggled with this and I think they've been very naive is that, Oh, if we only convince them of the intrinsic value of wildlife that they'll come on board and that's never going to happen. Well, and I'd like to definitely sort of differentiate how tribes approach things from intrinsic value because uh, for a lot of us, we're on the one hand very skeptical of urgency arguments, but on the other hand, we're very skeptical of intrinsic value arguments. And I mean, let me give just uh, some quick examples of what I mean. So on the one hand, every sort of bad thing that's happened to us, like in the United States or Canada, has been justified by the settler or the colonial society out of a need for, you know, for urgency, uh, whether it was the urgency of the Cold War in the United States or the urgency of Christianizing native people. And so in the world of, you know, climate change adaptation, when you look at programs and, and mitigation, you know, when you look at programs like like dams and forest conservation that are attempting to respond urgently to the so-called climate crisis, indigenous people continue to be upset about how those programs are rolled out because when people respond urgently, they forget about their ethical obligations to others. And so a lot of native people are very skeptical about some of the solutions to climate change. And I think climate resettlement is a good example of this, where if you look at cases of climate change resettlement in the United States or in 
other parts of the world, the particular indigenous people are extremely upset that their consent is not taken into consideration that they do not trust the government entities that are guiding the resettlement processes. Uh, and so, you know, for this region, I think that people oftentimes act poorly when they are acting in the interest of, of urgency. And obviously that's scary for us as indigenous people, but it's something we're familiar with. Now, regarding intrinsic value, I mean, I think a lot of people forget that the conservation movement has been uh, in a lot of ways just as violent to indigenous people over time as, say, like the mining or fossil fuel industries and, you know, wilderness areas, national parks, uh, other protected areas that use intrinsic value arguments. Oftentimes, those intrinsic value arguments were part of justifications to disallow indigenous people from living on or sharing equally uh, in those lands. And indigenous people have been dispossessed and removed from those areas. And so what I remind people is that actually for indigenous people, for us, it's not about intrinsic value. It's about kinship value. And what kinship value is, is the idea that your relationships with the environment are based on qualities like reciprocity, trust, consent, and accountability, even with the non-human world, which might sound a little bit strange, but in another more detailed conversation, I think there's a lot of ways to spell out how that works. And so for us, we're motivated to deal with an issue like climate change because that's part of being accountable. That's part of being in a reciprocal relationship. That's part of being trustworthy and consensual. And so I think that terms like urgency and intrinsic value don't quite capture what motivates a lot of indigenous people. Well, I'll bring that up again, but that is a fascinating subject of, of who gets to define the urgency of the situation. Right. That, that I haven't really pondered that too much. It's worthy of its own discussion. That's great. Okay, I, I sort of I want to pivot relatively soon, but I, I I think this is some work that you're doing. Is that to me, you have some really it, not you, but just in general in, in tribal communities, there's really some interesting work going on here and there. But are you involved with some efforts to sort of try to link these things up nationally and maybe? some shared learning there did i have that right um yeah absolutely so you know a lot of what i do is work with tribes to promote their capacity to prepare for climate change and i work with a lot of excuse me a lot of climate scientists too improve the way in which they collaborate with tribes and to start repairing relationships that have been uh, harmed over the the years and so I'm part of, you know, policy initiatives. I'm part of uh, grant-supported projects. You know, I go to a number of different meetings and trainings each year. So I try to do my best to, you know, to advocate for tribes and advocate for ethical standards of collaboration everywhere I go. Hey, Adapters, I hope you're enjoying the conversation with Kyle White. We'll get right back to it where we dig into the challenges of tribal engagement. But first off, I want to update you on the Podcast in the Classroom initiative. We now have discussion guides available for seven episodes. There's a page on the website, americadaps.org, linked in the show notes that will take you to those guides. Podcasts are great resources to use in the classroom, and here are some resources to make it easier. If you're interested in developing your own discussion guides, reach out. There's a small team that's working on it for this podcast. It's really an exciting thing, and hopefully we'll see more of this in the classroom settings, in high schools, universities, and even professional settings. Some upcoming travel. I'm headed to the National Adaptation Forum in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm very excited to go to this forum since I'll get to meet many of my listeners in person. I've already heard from quite a few of you that you'll be there. 
There will be quite a few people at the forum, so definitely look for my name tag and reach out. There will be several networking events too, so hopefully we'll be able to connect in one way or another. Also, I'm going to St. Augustine in May for the Keeping History Above Water Conference. It's about sea level rise and historic preservation. I'm being sponsored by the University of Florida to record a podcast and lead a podcasting workshop. If you happen to be in St. Augustine on those dates, May 4th through May 8th, the podcasting workshop is actually open to the public. That should be fun for those who want to learn how to launch your own podcast. Okay, upcoming episodes. I'll be talking with a researcher at Yale on how climate science fiction, or cli-fi, can actually influence someone's behavior. Cli-fi guru Dr. Amy Brady was my co-host in that interview. Also, Dr. Marcy Rockman, former cultural resources adaptation coordinator at the National Park Service, will talk about how we adapt cultural resources to climate change. Some great stuff coming up. Okay, adapters. This is important. America Adapts is a charitable organization that needs your support. Please consider giving a tax-deductible donation. If I'm going to continue having these great conversations and going on the field and talking with adapters, I'm going to need your support. There's links in the show notes to a We Did It donate page. This organization is supported by individual donations like yours and through sponsored podcasts. And on that note, if you and your organization are interested in partnering on a specific podcast, let me know. There's so many stories to tell on this emerging issue. Let's see if we can collaborate on a future episode. I'm hoping to find a sponsor to get to the Adaptation Canada 2020, which will be in Vancouver next year. I have a lot of Canadian listeners, so let's see if we can partner so I can cover that event. Also, if you are interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. I've been doing some keynote presentations, and they are so much fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences in adaptation, and I will talk about them in ways that will motivate you and inspire you. You can contact me via the website, americadapts.org. Okay, let's get back to Dr. Kyle White and learn how you can effectively engage with tribal communities. So the second part of this conversation, we've obviously touched upon it many times, but I, I do want to sort of do a deeper dive in this this whole notion of tribal engagement. And I guess just starting this off, what do you think the, the state of tribal engagement is right now on the issue of climate change? And, you know, you've got federal players and state players and, and just, again, at the sort of 30,000 foot level. Yeah, it's it's good and it's bad. The, you know, the good thing is that People in the federal government and increasingly at more local levels of government, they recognize the importance of collaborating with tribes, engaging with tribes, whether it's at the, the governmental level or whether it has to do with indigenous knowledge. But what we're seeing is that there's still a learning curve because people aren't educated in the specifics of what it means to work respectfully with tribes. And it's still the case that especially local government is really unprepared uh, and state government is extremely unprepared because these levels of government really don't have longstanding traditions or historic legal agreements that would have gotten that conversation going about tribal engagement as the same, in the same way that it's occurred at the federal government. And the irony of that is that you could say that the entities, the government entities that are least educated and prepared to work with tribes are, similar to something you said earlier, actually the ones that tribes need to work with more closely on adaptation, since that is largely related to your your relationships at the local and regional level. And so I think for a lot of tribes, they're trying to figure out, well, how is it that we can continue to work with the federal government, but then increase our improve our relationships with state and local government. Okay, this gets to that 
issue of urgency that I'm going to be bringing up over and over again. Like, let, <laughs> let's say that, and I'm doing very hypothetical generalizations here, but a tribe wants to deal with climate change and then its relationship, let's say, with the Bureau of Indian Affairs or whoever might be engaging them on this issue is not very good. Uh, is it realistic to just sort of step back? We are not going to engage with you, even though we might not have the expertise. I mean, is it just the the BIA? And I'm just putting them in a corner there. How do you kind of overcome that? You see what I'm saying? On one side, it's just like, well, we don't like how they engage with us, so we're not going to engage with them. The other one's not really doing it well. Is it on them to just figure out how to do it well? Because, and again, the urgency of climate change, are you just going to keep waiting? It's a good and it's a tricky question. And, you know, what, what I'll say is this, uh, is that there's a strange, um, you know, space in which I think a lot of indigenous people live in where I think you kind of have to look at things through our perspective. So, you know, on the one hand, we recognize that our capacity to be resilient and to be sustainable is a function of the strength of our relationships, both within our communities, but then across indigenous communities, state, federal, local government, you know, neighboring communities surrounding us. So we know that that's just crucial and that we always have to work to improve and strengthen those relationships. What is important to recognize is that as indigenous people, we have had to, over time, figure out this United States system. And it wasn't one that was explained to us. It uh, wasn't one that we wanted. But we had to do the extra work, which is not a nine to five job to accomplish, right? We had to do all the extra labor to figure out how to work as effectively we, as we could with non-native people. And so I don't think it's that much to ask non-native people to take extra time out of their jobs and their work, right, to learn about our systems. Now, speaking to your question, does that mean that, that, you know, we're not going to be able to move as urgently and as quickly as we can on our climate change preparedness? Well, yes, but we've already exhausted the degree to which we can educate others and we can improve those relationships. And given the experiences that a lot of our ancestors had and just how many times they saw their own worlds destroyed before their eyes, I think we have a great deal of uh, patience and a, in some ways, a, an ability to think reflectively and, and ethically about the fact that it might be true <laughs> that non-native people aren't going to change fast enough. Okay, we talked about this before, and, I, and again, <laughs> I want to be careful how I say this, but I, I've, especially in Australia and to a lesser extent here in the U.S., is that I kind of feel like there's this sort of indigenous bureaucracy too. You know, you, you, the tribal nations are just as capable of having bureaucrats, and I would attend meetings in Australia where we were dealing with natural resource management bodies, and everyone were the, was there conservationists, you know, ag people, and then Aboriginal representatives, and most of the time they were actual Aborigines, and you know, people would stand up and kind of share their perspectives and. To me, I felt like it was a really friendly audience for that. There, there could be a lot less friendly audiences, be it politicians, corporate interests, but this was a friendly audience. And the kind of, I would go to these workshops and meetings over and over again, and the same people would show up and say the same things about, you know, you need to respect Aboriginal interests, you need to, you know, partner better. And everyone would sort of agree. You've got this friendly audience. And then two months later, the same workshop, same person steps up and do that. That says that's sort of same thing. And I just recently went to a workshop here 
And I, I heard the exact same things from those kind of tribal reps. And I, I guess I got a bit frustrated. I know there's a huge history of not respecting those things, but I mean, to me, this, a lot of these audiences they're now stepping into are, are relatively friendly to get some things done and the same things are being said. Well, so that's an issue that a lot of people bring up to me about, about collaboration. And it's a pretty complicated issue. And I think for, you know, for people who, you know, kind of depending on their, their background and, and who they are, who have lived with kind of a certain level of privilege, it's tricky to kind of see some of the internal dynamics that are happening there. So to kind of like unpack those examples, you know, I often have and experience that when I travel to parts of the world where indigenous people have not shared the types of privileges that some indigenous people, I would say like myself, have had being in the United States context, that it's easy for me to say, okay, well, let's, you know, indigenize this climate change process. Let's change law and policy. Let's change education. And, you know, you would think, right, that folks from those places would be like, yes, let's do it. Let's work together. You're also indigenous. We trust you and let's do this. But in contexts where historically there is still distrust and there's still a lack of consent and where actually a lot of the financial incentives are still severely misaligned, even though particular individuals are committed to making change and making transfer transformation, I think for a lot of us, we recognize that those particular individuals still might not have the power to overcome a number of institutional, bureaucratic, and other challenges that are still in place. And until we see those individuals stand up and challenge and critique those larger issues, then it's hard to want to do more than just stand up and make the same statements. And so I think what we're asking folks to do is not just be willing to collaborate, but actually to take a stand and to be just as critical as we are about the problems that we're encountering structurally and politically and culturally and in terms of discrimination, you know, at the hands of countries like the United States. And again, that goes back to the importance of these kinship qualities that just because somebody is motivated and willing to engage in transformative behavior, are they willing to engage in the long-term time it takes to build accountability, to build reciprocity, to build consent, uh, and to build trust among other qualities? No, I think that's a great point, and I'm, you know, I certainly don't want to single out, oh, the, the, you know, the tribal reps behaving in, in this way. It's, it is structural. You could have a Fed person coming and standing up and saying the same thing at every meeting. I, I, right. This well, is- well, yeah, and one thing I'll just add to that, I mean, because, I mean, there are a couple, I mean, important parts of your question. I mean, the second part is that, you know, internally in tribes, we're pretty critical about our own people, and the, I, I mean, any tribe that, I've connected with has a pretty live discussion about just the different perceptions and the different views people have. And actually, the tribal bureaucracy is something that can be particularly controversial. And I think kind of folks need to um, to put themselves in our shoes that we didn't choose these bureaucracies. In fact, they have a, a really checkered history, actually, in the United States. And it is different for each tribe, but the short of it is that these tribal bureaucracies 
you know, depending on the community, it could have been 70 years ago or 80 years ago or for some people more recently. But they were sort of ultimatums that were thrown at us by the United States. And the idea was that the United States would threaten with economic sanctions if we didn't adopt a, a corporate type of government. And the United States had this idea that if we had corporate governments, we would then start connecting to the mining industry, to commercial agriculture and the things that U.S. settlers wanted. And so a lot of people associate these bureaucracies democracies with the further dispossession uh, and degradation of indigenous lands. And many of us still have a lot of kind of animosity about that history. At the same time, these bureaucracies play a very important role in protecting our tribal members' health, their economic well-being, among a number of other areas. And so it's a pretty tricky topic. And I'm not surprised that you have the observations that you do <laughs> about the bureaucracy. And I think many Native people are, are right there with you. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not saying it's the right observation. It's just my own sort of take yeah. on it. I, I, all those moments, I was just fascinated when, they, when the Aboriginal person stood up. I would just sit there like, okay, what is it? This is new to me. I'm, I'm very curious. Anyway, and so it's just my own personal experiences going through that. So I thought this was interesting in, in one of the papers that you sent me that there's some concern that climate scientists are using indigenous knowledge in a way that's detrimental to, to those people. And could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that occurred, you know, some decades ago is that climate scientists recognize that the sorts of things that, you know, native people know about their environment or the history of their environment would be useful actually to improving climate science. You know, native people oftentimes have pretty fine-grained knowledge of of a local context that, you know, is going to be hard to study from the perspective of a climate scientist or native people have knowledge of the history of a particular region that, you know, is is not found in any other records that a climate scientist would have available to them. And so Climate scientists, I think, in some ways thought that their field was kind of a smokeless science in the sense that, you know, it wouldn't necessarily pose any research risks like other fields in health and anthropology had historically, and some would say today too, right, posed uh, to indigenous people. And so they kind of went full throttle in talking about indigenous knowledge and engaging in tribal communities. And what it turned out is that there actually are a a number of risks. And so I'm, I'm part of a group called the Climate and Traditional Knowledges Work Group, and it's a, a fantastic group of Native and allied folks who have been working on these issues for some time. And, you know, we have some really experienced people in the group, like um, like Preston Hardison, who works at the Tulalip Tribe and actually represents them at the United Nations on issues of intellectual property. And what we've found in some of the literature that we've produced is that, you know, for example, oftentimes the way in which climate scientists want to to study the environment uh, violates particular ethics that tribal members have in terms of how you handle plants or animals or how you, you know, move around in the environment or where you have permission to, to go. Oftentimes, um, climate scientists are actually interested in getting data from tribes that isn't useful for tribes' own efforts to adapt, right? Just because a piece of information would improve a scientific study doesn't mean that that's 
policy relevant or educational relevant for tribes in terms of what they need to do so that elders and other people in the tribe would expend all this energy and it would just disappear into a publication. And another area are actual privacy concerns is that things that um, a tribe might share, right? Like, for example, how they know the movements of a certain plant or a certain animal population might disclose areas where they hunt or gather or fish that, that could be actually areas that are politically controversial or to do with issues of treaty rights and, and other things that are quite a big deal in those areas. And so if that information goes public, then parties that would like to exploit that information, which could be a wide range of, of parties, would uh, be able to exploit tribes. And so those are kind of some of the risks and there's there's more as well. But I think the main point is that even climate science is not, you know, a smokeless field. Yeah, that, that I find that that's tricky too. And I, and I think of scientists almost think of themselves as, you know, a political, you know, a cultural and, but at the same time, they're probably producing some information that would be very valuable to tribes, and a lot of them probably just don't care if these tribes get it, but they have it. And so let's say it's downscaled to certain landscapes, and that dynamic of are they going to engage anyway because one side really doesn't care and the other would like that information, but they just don't necessarily trust the, the climate science. It, it, it just gets complicated very quickly. I don't necessarily have a solution right. there, but it just – you would hope that some of these tribes would be like, you know what, we'd really like that information because our own history is not going to tell us that. That's an area that we just literally can't do. So, Well, that's right. And I mean, I think it needs to, you know, kind of be out there that, you know, tribes actually have been advocates of climate science. You know, tribes are among the groups that believe in the importance of, of climate science and, you know, Oftentimes, in cases where I've worked with climate scientists, some of the information that they've collected on their own uh, could be made more useful if it was just presented in a way that was relevant to tribes. So, for example, if it was presented in terms of the, the reservation scale, the historic ancestral territory for tribes whose communities straddle the, you know, the quote unquote U.S. Canadian border, they might actually want that regional information that's not exclusive to the U.S. or Canada. And so I see a lot of climate scientists now wanting to do this, but there's such a deficit in knowledge and resources about these jurisdictions and these histories that they're really not able to succeed in these areas. And it's a function of the commitment of their supporters to doing things that would benefit tribes. Okay, I think this is related, but what is the Rising Voices initiative? Oh yeah, um, great question. The so the Rising Voices initiative is so first of all, it's a network that involves indigenous people and climate scientists and you know some major climate science organizations such as the National Center for Atmospheric Research which is I think the major funder for it and the Rising Voices as the network actually I think can be traced to some of the people who were part of that you know native peoples native homelands workshop in the late 1990s but you know really in the last I think 7 or 8 years it's grown you know quickly under the leadership of people like uh, Julie Maldonado and Heather Lazarus and the late Bob Goff among a number of other people I'm not mentioning and so the Rising Voices network meets each year and what I think is important to note about it is that not only does it bring together native people and climate scientists but when the conference is hosted, say, at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, 
that uh, indigenous people take a lot of initiative to help create a space that's conducive to the conversations that they want to have. And so it's not uncommon that, you know, particular native folks who come will perform a ceremony. People are you know, supposed to feel comfortable expressing their views and some of their knowledge with the audience. Um, so it's supposed to be a safe space. And obviously, like with any network that's supposed to be bridging uh, cultural differences, right, there are definitely challenges to this. And Rising Voices has also been hosting the conference in actual tribal communities in indigenous communities, or better put, those indigenous communities are hosting the event. And so the, the Fond du Lac tribe was one of the locations for the Rising Voices last year. And the people in the Rising Voices network are really trying to grow the network so that it promotes greater collaboration across indigenous people and others so that hopefully in the future, it's going to be more than just a, a conference, but would really reflect all the careers, all the projects that have been started because of the connections that were made at the conference. All right, cool. Great example. Glad you elaborated on that. And is there like a good website that kind of explains that a little better? You know, I think there is, but, you know, I'll be honest every once in a while, if I'm checking to verify like the date of Rising Voices or, you know, some information, I'll, I'll find a little bit of trouble finding the most recent one. But there's an article on Rising Voices called The Story of Rising Voices, and Julie Maldonado is one of the authors of it. And if somebody Googles Rising Voices, they'll also find some of the policy statements that were produced as a result of the event. So I just encourage people to search widely for all information. And if they're not finding any luck, they can always uh, drop me a note. Uh, give me a few days to get back to you, but I'll definitely respond. Well, this isn't, it doesn't sound like your responsibility, but it sounds like an important <laughs> enough initiative that someone needs to be investing, I guess, a bit of a better, better online presence. You know, people could tap into those resources better. So, <laughs> yeah, I think you're, I know, I, I, I think you're right. And I think maybe that that's, that's, that's hopefully in the works. <laughs> this has been a fabulous conversation and this. You got in my head now, this whole notion of like defining urgency. And I've always thought I said, I was the sort of, my position was, oh, that's the logical one. And that's not necessarily the case. And, you know, I was trying to think of a proper metaphor in this, in this circumstance of climate change and, you know, respecting cultural differences and, practices as we engage on this issue. And I just can't, I always come back to like the Titanic and people are getting out on those lifeboats. And let's say a, a woman or a man, their particular culture, religion says, you know what? We can't really sit closely by another man or another woman, but you get on that lifeboat and you're, you, you have to sit next to that person because your circumstances are sort of forcing you to. And I guess where I'm coming from, I just think as the climate change situation gets more dire. And I'm not a pessimist. It's not a doom and gloom kind of thing. I just wonder if cultural traditions are just going to be kind of pushed out the door. And not that I think that's a good thing. I just, it's more of, I'm speculating. I bet that happens more than we realize. Well, it, it happens, you know, and it, it has happened. I mean, I think one of the things that is upsetting about colonial history is that when non-native people in North America, they oftentimes relied on indigenous people when their lives were on the line. And that's why they actually, you know, stole a lot of our knowledge. That's why they depended on us for years during like the fur trade and other times for knowledge of the environment, for supplies. Uh, they depended on us actually for managing the ecosystem in a way that would produce all those furs. And so, you know, we have this idea that when 
the non-native population was in an urgent situation. Yeah, they just totally bonded, connected, and allowed us to support them. But the minute they got a little bit of an upper hand or they could ignore us, then they did and they just moved on. And so I think we are pretty skeptical, but while at the same time being committed to the hard work it's going to take to be prepared for climate change and to address it. But I think, I mean, at least for me, and I think a lot of other folks would probably share this, we are skeptical of what that future may hold regarding urgency. And I think people have to remember that for indigenous people, we're already in, you know, our utopia. We're, we're, we've already seen the loss of hundreds and hundreds of plants and animals, something far worse than at least the projections I've seen for dangerous climate change. And I think when you're dealing with a non-native population that's actually trying to preserve today's world and feels urgently about it, that they're not recognizing that there's a problem with the world that they're trying to save and that they're actually trying to save our dystopia. And our dystopia is one where people don't relate to us through kinship relationships, through reciprocity, accountability, trust, and consent. And that's why it's a concern, I think, that when people become more and more urgent, that environmental injustice will once again affect indigenous people, people of color, and other groups. Oh, man, you just took a bat to my knees. That was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't trying to. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, you did. I'm just, I'm, and uh, that was beautiful. And okay, so I want to end on a positive note here. And for, I have tribal listeners to this podcast who might not have ever heard of you or just dabbling into the issue of adaptation. And then, of course, non-native people. Could you do you have one or two recommendations for each of those groups on how they can engage a bit more, learn a bit more about what their area can do on getting more involved with climate adaptation? And and then I guess engaging with like, you know, the non-native, like what what are some resources for them to help engage with uh, indigenous people? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of resources to mention. So first is the um the climate and traditional knowledges work group, which you can um Google and find that website. It has a lot about best practices for collaborating with for collaborating with tribes. On my website, I think I have the largest bibliography available on information pertaining to indigenous people and climate change. If you go to my website, there's a tab called um, Climate Justice under Teaching Resources. And the first part of that page has a ton of uh, like primers on indigenous people and climate change that will help anybody kind of get involved and kind of get their feet wet and some of the things they need to be aware of for the work they're doing. And the last thing I'll say is that for people who are involved in this work, we try to have a big tribal presence at the National Adaptation Forum every two years ago, and that's coming up in, I think, a little over a a month. And so uh, definitely come to the tribal sessions at the National Adaptation Forum to uh, to learn more. Oh, great. I'll get to meet you in person there. I'll, I'll be going. Fantastic. Last question I asked of every guest, if you could recommend one person to come on one person, everyone throws two or three out, one person to come on the podcast, who would it be? Well, it would be great if you all would have Sheila Watt Cloutier, who wrote the book, The Right to be Cold, on indigenous people in the Arctic and climate change. And uh, do you have connections with her? Not the connections that would necessarily help you out, but, okay. <laughs> but it's right. always worth a try. <laughs> I, it's, it's really not that hard. You know, you contact, hey, you want to come on the podcast? Most people <laughs> want to come on and talk about what they do, so I, I can reach out. 
So Kyle, this lived up to my expectations. What a rich conversation. I think a lot of people are going to get a lot of value out of this and, you know, schooled me plenty of time, but thank you so much for what you do. And this was a great learning experience. And it's, I think it's just the tip of the iceberg. I'm going to obviously come back to uh, indigenous issues and climate adaptation over and over again. So, but thanks again for coming on. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. And I look forward to, you know, continuing these conversations and connecting to your podcast. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Kyle for coming on and sharing his thoughts and expertise around indigenous people and climate change. As you heard, I've had my own experiences with indigenous people, and it was refreshing to hear from Kyle explain to me why my attitudes were so naive and sometimes really quite unhelpful. Kyle's insight on the historical issues associated with tribal engagement were fascinating, and I think many of us have much to learn about the nuances of dealing with tribes. I hope this episode can be a resource to you. Thanks again, Kyle, for coming on. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Adapts on Facebook and ask to join, and I will approve you right away. It's a chance to hear some insider info on the podcast and to see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. Seriously, it's the highlight of my week hearing from you. And sometimes it leads to cool collaborations. I'm also continuing to do this Letters from Adapter series. I haven't done it for a few episodes, but I hope to do it for the next one. So please consider sending in your own note, your own perspectives, and I'd love to read it on, on the show. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, check out the website, americadaps.org. All this information is in my show notes, especially the link to the donate page. And don't forget, considering if you're sitting there thinking, oh, what can I do and how can I participate with America Daps? Consider sharing this episode on social media, on your personal Facebook page. Tweet about it. Tweet at me. I'll retweet it. Don't forget to use social media. It's a great way to get the word out on these episodes. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.